pray, Lord, that you would give me words that are honoring and glorifying for you. I pray that for each one here, they would hear the word of the Lord who came that day to the River Jordan. I pray, O Lord, that you would help each one of us to respond with faithful, repentant obedience in all of the things that you call us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Finally. I have um, I've been thinking about uh, the Gospel of Matthew for a few years now. Um, I, 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 I sort of got there uh, by mistake or by accident. Uh, when I, uh, during my day job is, is I work with a missionary uh, organization called Training Leaders International. If you don't know that, that's what I do. And uh, one of the things they asked me to do after I began working at TLI uh, was they asked me if I would teach a course on the doctrine of the Trinity uh, at a seminary in a sort of semi-closed country in South Asia. And um, I I said, sure, uh, but frankly, I was a bit nervous about that. it's not that I didn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. I did. Uh, but I, w- I was frankly a little bit nervous about how it was going to go when I started really digging into the texts. Would I, would I find there the doctrine of the Trinity that the church had confessed for the last 2,000 years? Is that what I would find or would I find something different? It was a fear in my heart. And uh, I'm happy to say uh, that uh, as I dug into the doctrine of the Trinity and as I turned to Scripture and as I read uh, the the work of of theologians across the ages as they have talked through uh, what it means for us to say that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as I did these things, I came not only to embrace with with a new vigor and a a new strength the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, but also, also found out that Studying the doctrine of the Trinity helped me to love my God much more than I had. As I came to know him better, I came to love him more. I also came to love his word. Uh, One of the unexpected things that happened as I was digging into this material was that I found myself driven over and over again to the book of Matthew. Now, we don't usually think about Matthew as a, a big book on the Trinity, but it is. Many of the great Trinitarian moments in the New Testament are unfolded for us in the book of Matthew. And so I chose for my sermon this Sunday, Matthew 3, 13 to 17, great Trinitarian revelation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Because I wanted to preach a sermon on the Trinity. And then I started to work on that sermon. And I found myself getting further and further away from actually saying anything about the Trinity. Uh, You know, I'm not a professional preacher, so I don't know, maybe this sort of thing happens all the time. Um, But I thought I was going to preach one sermon. I expected to preach one sermon, and uh, things didn't quite go the way I expected them to. My experience turned out to be something quite a bit different. Instead, what I, what I found was that I was becoming more and more captivated with the relationship that was unfolding here between John the Baptist and Jesus at this meeting 
at the River Jordan. And so this is a sermon about that. Now, it is a sermon about the Trinity because I think every Christian sermon is a sermon about the Trinity. But the Trinity is going to be a little bit less on the front burner than I would have expected it to be. You know, when we, when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we read the Gospels, we often approach them thinking that the major question they are seeking to answer is this. Who is Jesus? And we think that's the question that they're seeking to answer. And in a sense, that's true. Right? The, the Gospels certainly are answering that question. I think in some cases it may even be the primary question that they are seeking to answer. But, you know, if you read, for example, the Gospel of John, by the time you get to verse 14, that question has solidly already been answered. Right? We know that he is the Word of God, who was with God, who was God, and who became flesh. Right? You haven't even gotten a third of the way through the first chapter, and all of those questions are answered. Gospel of Mark does the same thing. Verse 1 We've already, said, we've already learned that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the way that he begins his gospel. If you unpack that, you've got everything there about who Jesus is. So if it's not necessarily the case that the gospels are answering this question, who is Jesus, then what is the question that is actually driving the drama? And, and I want to suggest that it's this. I think the question that drives the drama in the Gospels is usually, why is it fitting? Given who Jesus claims to be, why is it fitting for him to behave the way that he does? Right? I think that's actually the question that the Gospels are answering. Why is he behaving like this if he is who he claims to be? That's the question that John the Baptist confronts. That's the crisis that John the Baptist faces when he meets Jesus on the banks of the River Jordan. And in some ways... Brothers and sisters, isn't that, isn't that just sort of the way it is? Anyone who has followed Jesus for any amount of time has reached that crisis moment where what you expected isn't what you're getting, right? And we say, Lord, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Right? I, I didn't know that you were going to put this in front of me. Lord, is this really part of the plan? Is this what you want me to do? Are you sure, Lord, that you know what you're doing? Because I don't know if I can handle this. All of us, if we're honest, who have followed Jesus for any matter of time have come to that place. And that's where John is in our passage. John is introduced to us in the book of Matthew as a man with a clear mission, and a clear message. A clear mission and a clear message. John's mission is to call God's people to prepare the way of the Lord, to sincerely repent, and to receive baptism as a sign and seal of that repentance. That's John's mission. 
That's a pretty important thing because according to John's message, the coming of that Lord is imminent. We can see this this imminence, right? This nearness of the coming of the Lord in a, in a, a barrage of imagery that Matthew gives us throughout chapter 3. John is preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is where? Where is it? It's at hand. It's right here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's very near. He says, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. It's not a dull axe, like Keith was talking about. No, this is a sharp axe laid at the root of the tree, ready to be brought back and put against the tree to cut it down. He says, the winnowing fork is in the hand of the Lord. That's verse 12. The winnowing fork is in the hand of the Lord. The winnowing fork, a symbol here of judgment, dividing between what Matthew calls the wheat and the chaff. John knows that. Another thing that John knows is that when the Lord comes, he will also come as a baptizer. The coming one, the Lord, is coming as a baptizer, but not with water for repentance and forgiveness. Instead, John says, he will baptize, this is verse 11, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John is out there. He is preparing the way of the Lord. He's smoothing the path for his arrival. But on the biggest day of his life, when John actually sees the Lord appear in front of him, the one whose way he's been preparing, things don't quite go the way that John had expected. In fact, I think this is one of the all-time awkward encounters ever. Right? It's kind of like, you remember this when you, you saw your teacher at the supermarket or something like that uh, and, and she's wearing the wrong clothes and you don't know to call her, is her name Mrs. Thornhill or, or you know, should I call her by her first name? Who is this, right? That's a little bit like what happened to John. Things did not go for him as expected. Why is this such an awkward moment? I think it's such an awkward moment for John because he does not understand that the mission of the Son of God is a two-stage mission. It's a two-stage mission. He doesn't understand that. Um, It's like a two-stage rocket. Two-stage rocket uh, from a distance, when it's there on the launch pad, you look at it, it looks like a single projectile. But it turns out it's made of different pieces. One piece is used to give it lift initially to break free of the Earth's gravitation, and then the second piece takes off. The second stage begins. When Jesus reveals himself as the Lord's anointed at Jordan, he doesn't show up as the sovereign and almighty God. He doesn't come with, a, with chariots of fire. He doesn't come with legions of angels. That's stage two. That's stage two. Stage one is different. Stage one, he comes in humility. He comes as a servant. He comes to live, comes to suffer, and he comes to die. Uh, You may know the news that uh, this past week, Elon Musk, billionaire Elon Musk, a close personal friend of mine, not really, uh, launched uh, the biggest multi-stage rocket ever, right? Biggest multi-stage rocket ever. And um, everything looked good at the beginning, right? The... uh, 
uh, ignition went off without a hitch. Uh, the rocket cleared the launch pad. This was a big deal that it cleared the launch pad. Uh, but pretty quickly, they realized that something was not right. Uh, there, there are 33 different rockets on this big rocket, and uh, six of them were not firing. And round about the three-minute mark over the Gulf of Mexico, uh, they pushed the button to explode it. They called this uh, a rapid, unscheduled disassembly, an RUD, right? This is sort of a joke, right? They, they exploded it because they didn't want a, you know, a rocket careening all over the place. Uh, good, good choice. This rocket never made it to stage two. Stage one failed. Jesus' baptism was not the moment of ignition for his mission. That was, I don't know, this metaphor is maybe not ideal, but that's the virgin birth, right? Um, The baptism is not clearing the launch pad either. I don't know, maybe that's like surviving the bloody schemes of Herod or something like that. But the baptism is essential for the success of stage one of Jesus' mission. John isn't going to baptize Jesus, then stage one fails and the whole mission falls apart. Let's turn to God's word and see that more clearly. As we we focus in on these uh, verses from uh, 13 to 17, I think the first thing that, that, that strikes, at least the first thing that strikes me, is just how purposeful, how intentional Jesus is in what he does here, in his actions. Uh, Look look at how deliberate he is. Jesus is described as being in Galilee. He's he's living his previous life, uh, presumably working in uh, the the, the carpentry shop of uh, Joseph, taking care of uh, his mother, taking care of his siblings. But now he turns away from that previous life. And he turns towards public ministry. As he does that, he came to the Jordan. He he leaves his home, he leaves Galilee, and he comes down into Judea. In 70 miles he comes. This is where John the Baptist is baptizing. And he comes, Jesus does, specifically to John. He doesn't just come to the Jordan for any old reason. He comes specifically to see John. Now, maybe there were a lot of people baptizing in the Jordan at this time. I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But it's not just that Jesus went to the Jordan on vacation and he happened to be there and and he saw this strange guy with the locusts and the honey and the camel and all that stuff. And he said, oh, I guess I'll go get baptized. No, he came specifically to be baptized by John was why he made this trip. Matthew wants us to know how intentional is this. So why John's baptism? Why does Jesus come specifically to be baptized by John? Well, to answer that, we have to think about what John's baptism is. It's a baptism of repentance, a baptism for confession of sins. This is at the heart of John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what's repentance? 
Now, we're, we're prone to think of repentance as a good work, right? Oh, I have to repent. I have to do as much good as I did bad, right? I have to do some good work so that God likes me again. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is when we turn away from the idols of our heart and we turn towards God and take refuge in him. Right? We turn away from one thing and we turn toward the other thing. We throw ourselves upon God in the hopes of finding mercy. In fact, John is saying that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom where, where God's will is done, where his name is hallowed, that kingdom is about to break in on your life. Right? That's what he's preaching to these people. And he says, that breaking in is going to be extraordinarily inconvenient for your plans. Things are not going to go the way that they have been going in the past. So get ready. Get ready to meet your God. This is John's message. And the best way, the best way, he says, in order to do that, the best way to get ready to meet your God is to sincerely own up to your sins right now and submit to judgment. Maybe he'll be merciful. Submit to the judgment of God in the hope of gaining his mercy. So John sees Jesus, and he recognizes him as the one whose way he's been preparing. Here's the Lord coming to his people. Here's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here's the righteous judge with flaming fire in his eyes, the one with the winnowing fork in his hand, ready to bring judgment, ready to put everything and everyone in their proper place, right? Well, not quite. Instead, Jesus comes looking for a sinner's baptism. And not too surprisingly, verse 15, John would have prohibited him. He would have prevented him from doing this. John says, no, 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 no. You don't know what you're doing, Lord. This isn't for you. Why does John want to prevent it? I think there's a short answer to that question. And the short answer is basically because John doesn't think it's fitting. Right? The, the Greek word here is prepon. John doesn't think it's prepon for Jesus to be baptized by him. We can see that uh, in Jesus' response to John's unwillingness. Right? Jesus says, it is fitting. It is fitting, it's verse 15. That is, it's, it's suitable, it's appropriate, it's right. It's the right thing to do given the circumstances that we are in. It's prep on. It's right for you to baptize me. So it's as if John sort of implicitly is saying, oh no, Lord, it isn't prep on. It isn't right for me to do this. And Jesus says, no, it is right. It is fitting. It is appropriate. But that just raises the next question for us, which is why on earth is this appropriate? Why is it appropriate for John to baptize Jesus with the baptism of repentance? Now, this is, this is a dense, a compact, right, a, a, a really terse section of Scripture. And so we don't get a whole lot of inner monologue from John. We don't, we don't get his motivation here exactly. Matthew doesn't give that to us. But I, I think I see two things in the text that helps us to see why John doesn't think that this is fitting for him to do. 
So the first thing is an issue of superiority. Right? He looks at Jesus and he says, for me to give you this baptism, it would, be, it would be degrading. It would be demeaning. Not to me, but to you. It would be degrading for me to baptize you because you have authority over me. Look at verse 11, right? John says, I'm not even, worried to, I'm not even worthy to carry this guy's sandals. How am I going to baptize him? John knows that Jesus is Lord. Matthew, a couple chapters earlier, called him God with us, Emmanuel. And John is saying, I don't have the authority to baptize you. That's not my mission, to baptize the one who is greater than I am. So I think that's the first thing. It's an issue of superiority. But I think there's a second issue. And I I think that this second issue is actually the main one that's at play in John's thinking. And that is that John doesn't believe that being baptized by him or by anyone fits Jesus' mission. John doesn't think that Jesus has come to be baptized. Instead, John thinks that Jesus should be baptized. You can see that in verse 14, right? I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. It's not a matter of superiority. It's a matter of role and function. This is what you came for. You came to baptize. Why should I be baptizing anymore? John had been preaching that when the kingdom of heaven comes, it comes with a different sort of baptism, a baptism of spirit and fire. And that's the baptism that John refers to when he says, you're the one who should be baptizing me. You should be baptizing me with that spirit and fire baptism. So then we ask, what in the world is a baptism of spirit and fire. And here I struggle, my friends, because that opens up a can of worms and the worms are everywhere and I don't know how to get them back in the can. Okay, so just, I'm just going to have to condense like, a whole lot of Old Testament literature in order to say that when John talks about this baptism of spirit and fire, What he's talking about is what the Old Testament prophets called the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the day when that axe that's laid at the root of the trees finally strikes. It's the day when God brings this age and this world to an end in judgment. And that is a scary prospect. It's a frightening thing. In fact, as frightening as it may appear, first blush, this is a kind of classic good news, bad news situation, folks. It's good news for all of those who have passed through the waters of baptism and who with with repentant faith-filled hearts have taken refuge in God. And it's bad news for those who have arrogantly rejected his mercy. Good news, bad news. And that good news, bad news baptism is the baptism that John expects the coming Lord 
to pour out on the earth, but his experience doesn't meet his expectations. He expects the Lord to come in glory and judgment, to come in spirit and in fire, and instead he gets a dirty, travel-worn Galilean looking for a baptism that he doesn't need. So why is it fitting? Why is it prep on for Jesus to receive baptism like a sinner rather than to bring a baptism of judgment as the creator, the covenant Lord of all the earth? I feel like this sermon is just a series of questions that go deeper and deeper. But the answer to that question brings us back to his two-stage mission, to Jesus' two-stage mission. Because Jesus says, in his response to John, he says, let it be so now. Let it be so now. R.T. France, in his commentary on this passage, he translates that as for now. He says, let it be so for now. For right now, let it be like this. Because it's fitting for me to receive this baptism in order to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew knows, of course, that Jesus is innocent. He knows he's sinless and guiltless. This is part of the drama that's playing out throughout the whole book of Matthew. It wasn't necessary for him to receive a baptism of repentance. But it was fitting for John to baptize him for our sake. For our sake, it was fitting for Jesus to be baptized. The the baptism is God's refusal to abandon his people to their sinfulness. Jesus could fulfill all righteousness, but we cannot. Jesus was willing to be baptized to identify himself with sinners. That is why it was necessary and fitting for him to be baptized. Folks, it's almost time for, uh, for summer in the Psalms. We've got just uh, a few weeks left, and so we have to remember, right, what happens to the king happens to his people. We have to get prepared for all the hand motions. What happens to the king happens to his people. We get what Jesus earns. But we only get what Jesus earns because first, he humbled himself and identified himself with us. Jesus passes through the waters of baptism so that we don't have to endure the baptism of fire on our own. Jesus passed through a baptism that he didn't need so that when he returns for phase two, It'll be good news. Phase two will be good news for all of us who take refuge in him. Jesus fulfills all righteousness for those who come to him with repentant hearts, not trusting in their own goodness, but in the one who bears judgment for them. And what's what's really neat about this passage is we actually get to see that message lived out in the text. We get to see John's own faith at work in this way. Look at the end of verse 15. Then he consented. Then he consented. John consents after Jesus tells him what to do. The master says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. 
even though you don't understand what I'm doing, I want you to obey. And John says, okay, this isn't what I was expecting, but I will trust. And he reshapes his behavior. He willingly baptizes the Son of God with a sinner's baptism. Grace Covenant, I think we can learn from John. We don't always understand what the Lord calls us to do. We often don't understand the next step that we're supposed to take in our lives. I know many of you are struggling with where you are in your life, what you're waiting for, what you're hoping for, the decisions that you're trying to make. These are real challenges. I certainly don't want to minimize them. I don't want to downplay them. It simply is the case that we often can't see why we are called to the things that God puts in front of us. We just don't know. Here at Grace Covenant, um, and in your own lives, in your jobs, in your families, uh, in your neighborhoods, right, you have been given a small part of Christ's vineyard to tend. It's just a small part. We don't have a megachurch here. We don't have 10,000 people on a Sunday morning. We're not reaching the masses. We have a small part of Christ's vineyard to tend. And what do we do? Week by week, we come up here, we preach the word of God, we sing God's praises, we pray to him, we receive his blessing, we receive his body and blood in the bread and wine. And as we do these things, The Lord is at work in our hearts. And we are at work in his vineyard, tending the vines, building the trellis up, right? Irrigating the vineyard so that that when those grapes are ready, they will produce a sweet vintage. We cannot know. We cannot know what the consequences of our faithful, diligent labors will be as we follow the Lord step by step in the things that he sets before us. We cannot know what those will be. But will we trust and obey that if we do what he tells us to do, that the vintage will be good? And John's example helps us to see that we're not not foolish, we're not rash when we do what the Lord sets in front of us, when we do what the Lord has given us to do. And from that perspective, brothers and sisters, from that perspective, the Christian life is extraordinarily simple. I don't mean to say it's easy, it's not easy, but it is very, very, very simple. We do what the Lord tells us to do. We obey when the master speaks. And when he reveals more, we shape our behavior in humble submission. We respond like John responded to our Lord Jesus. That's what we do. That's the Christian life. And if we do that, the Lord is with us in it. Um, I, th- I think another uh, encouraging uh, piece within this passage um, is that, well, look, it, 
it's often the case, not always, right? I'm not promising this, but it's often the case that understanding follows obedience. Understanding follows obedience. We're given insight into what God's doing after we exercise faith. And that, that is what we see happening here. Okay, immediately after the water baptism. Notice, by the way, uh, there's no description of the baptism itself. This is one of the really neat things about this passage. Baptism, which is the center of what's happening here, uh, and and the whole passage revolves around it, it's not described. After the baptism of Jesus, immediately, immediately, God displays himself. God reveals himself. He opens his heart to his people in a new way. God shows himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's only because that one God is the three persons, it's only because of that that the two-stage mission of the Son is successful. I had to get the Trinity in here somehow. John had prophesied that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He said, behold, verse 16, behold, Heavens were opened to him. You see, John had said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and now behold, the heavens are opened. John had prophesied that Holy Spirit baptism would mark that day of the Lord. Behold, verse 16, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. The Holy Spirit. John had prophesied that the judge of all the earth would divide the wheat and the chaff. Verse 17. Behold, the Father's voice from heaven in judgment. And what does he say? What judgment does he render? This is my beloved son. I'm so pleased with him. He does all things well. John couldn't have borne that judgment. You and I can't bear that judgment on our own. Jesus can bear that judgment. He is the beloved Son with whom the Father is well pleased. And that Son binds himself in water baptism, the baptism of repentance and forgiveness. He binds himself to everyone who comes to him with living, repentant faith. He did this so that every one of you, every one of us who takes refuge in Jesus, and especially in the hard times, when the next step doesn't seem to make sense, that's when faith really matters, right? It's in those moments that it matters. Every one of us who takes refuge in Jesus can hear Those words, this is my beloved son. And you can know that that love extends to you. You can know that the father looks at you and says, my beloved one, my child, I am pleased with you. The book we're reading for Christian Formation, um, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. 
Uh, I, was, I was getting caught up on reading uh, for this week. Uh, Bill, I made it. I'm, I'm ready for chapters 3 and 4. Chapter, I, I don't know if it was chapter 1 or 2, but it introduced the idea of stoppage time. And if you know soccer, or as everyone else in the world calls it, football, uh, if you know soccer, you know what stoppage times is. Sometimes uh, at the end of a period, the referees decide that it, is, that it is prep on, right? that it's fitting for them to add a minute or two or ten uh, to the end of the match. And so the, the, the timer stops. Right? The, the 90 minutes are up. The gameplay is over. And the game goes on. It continues running. And if you're a, a player or if you're there in the stands watching the game, you don't know how long this is going to last. It's just going on. So what do you do? Well, you score. Or you defend, right? You do whatever you have to do in order to continue the game. John thought that the game would end at 90 minutes. He thought the scores would be tallied at that point. But Jesus says there's stoppage time. Stoppage doesn't last forever. Uh, That axe that John preached about is still laid at the root of the trees. The winnowing fork is still in the hand of the Lord. The day is coming when our glorious king will return and tally the score. You can't win this match. You can't win it on your own. Christ can. So my friends, get on his team. And if you're on his team, then get playing. Because stoppage time doesn't last forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, we give you praise and thanks for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who does all things well. We thank you that for us and for our salvation, he was born, he lived and suffered and died. We thank you more, Lord, that he rose again from the dead and has ascended to your right hand. And as we look, Lord, uh, with, with fear and trembling, but with eager expectation, to that day when stage two of his mission will be complete, when stoppage time will come to an end, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to be at work about the kingdom-building project that he has given us to do. Oh, Lord, would you teach us to be faithful every step of the way as we walk before you and follow the lead that you have put before us. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 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 Amen.